0: Early in 2016, I got a phone call from the Irish Times. Two of my great uncle Edward Keegan's 1916 medals had gone on sale in New York, and though the newspaper wanted to purchase them, it very considerately Wanted to check that this was okay with the Keegan family. Edward had been dismissed from the newspaper after the rising, and the Irish Times wanted to make amends. So I phoned my auntie Maura, who is the oldest surviving Keegan and the younger sister of my dead mother, and after some debate, we agreed it was a nice idea, especially as the newspaper would put the medals on display. On the same day, as the medals were unveiled in Tower Street, a plaque, uh, an enhanced plaque, was revealed in the Abbey Theatre. Added to it were the names of Patrick and Willie Pierce, Tom McDonough and our great uncle. Edward had so impressed the great Yates by his acting that he'd been offered a full-time post in the theatre. But his wife, who also had children to consider, thought WB was a bit flaky and she urged her husband to hold on to his reliable job in the ad section of the Irish Times. Edward was shot through the lung in hand-to-hand fighting in the South Dublin Union, which I think must have been terrifying for all concerned, and especially for the poor patients who had to sit through it. But Edward never again enjoyed full health, and his family almost certainly had to pawn those medals. In a gesture of kindness, the Abbey Theatre gave him a job as assistant stage manager, which he had at the time of his death in 1938. In the years before that, he did a lot of voluntary work, advancing the case for pensions for forgotten veterans of the rising. Like his brothers, Joe and Tom, who was my maternal grandfather, he'd been a member of the Lawrence O'Toole Pipe Band and its Hurling Club, as well as of the Gaelic League and the Irish Volunteers. And like each brother, he took no part in the Civil War, which he regarded as a disaster that former friends should kill one another on the basis of rather abstracted argument. In this, I think, the Keegans were very typical of the 1916 generation, surprisingly few of whom fought in the inaptly named Koga Nagarad. Instead, they returned to cultural activities, those activities which at first brought them into the national movement. The Abbey plaque was the brainchild of Stephen Ray, who said a few gentle words at its unveiling. But the later event at the Irish Times proved strangely different. There was brief mention of Edward Keegan, after which an academic historian from my old university spoke for over 35 minutes on the importance of Commonwealth, Fine Gael, in the establishment and consolidation of the Irish state. Now, I I found that a bit strange, though in some ways not, because, of course, I had spent 34 years in UCD. In recent years, the decade of commemorations was dominated by speakers from Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, neither of which really existed as parties in the period we're covering, 1912 to 22. It was as if these latecomers to the feast were obsessed with inserting themselves into the narrative. And when more recently the time came to commemorate the Civil War, the joint presence of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael as speakers at Beilnham Law was seen as a sign of maturity breakthrough into open-heartedness. The bipolar theory that veterans of the War of Independence had all taken one side or the other in the Civil War was somehow seen as axiomatic as the two parties which emerged from that war jockeyed their representatives into self-congratulatory positions. The role of the Labour Party leader at that time, Tom Johnson, in seeking a peace between the belligerents didn't receive much mention. Nor did the part played by Labour in the many events commemorated, the agonising decision not to contest the 1918 election, the Soviet established in Limerick, ongoing agitation for the rights of women and children. A private security firm had been hired in 2013 with no sense of irony to control and monitor crowds which marked the anniversary of the Dublin lockout of 1913. It was all too reminiscent of Conor Cruz O'Brien's famous remark during the 66 commemorations that the two major parties were in danger of commemorating themselves to death. And although I live in Clontarf, I don't recall any major state or national event at Tom Johnson's grave in the local cemetery or any mention that his suggestion that the rights of children, which had featured in the radical theories of the democratic program of the first Dáil, 1919, should be written into the 1922 Constitution. In a previous Machina paper, President Higgins has recalled how Tom Johnson's condemnation of non-judicial executions, quote, brought him not any thanks but death threats from Liam Lynch on behalf of the anti-treatyites. I think the reluctance to reproduce many of the radical ideas of the Easter Proclamation or the democratic program in subsequent constitutions was probably based on the notion that ideas as such were dangerous. People often blamed the Civil War on hair-splitting exponents of abstract notions. And this allergy to radical new ideas was amplified, especially if they were supported by radical women. Although Maude Ghosn and Mary McSweeney won reputations as unmanageable revolutionaries, most women of the period wanted peace and confined their gestures to sending papers and tobacco to comfort men in jail, sometimes helping a person on the run to find a dugout in which to hide. But the role of women in trying to broker a peace in 1922, Republicans without malice as Augusta Gregory called them, this proved futile. Hannah Skeffington has written of how when she went to plead with Collins, she found only a man with a touch of the dictator, whose ideal Ireland was a replica of the British state, Quote, with the usual soldier's contempt for civilians, particularly women, though these had often risked their lives to help him, thus Hannah Sheehy Skeffington. Lady Gregory's deputation to Kevin O'Higgins got short shrift, derided as, quote, hysterical young women who ought to be playing five-finger exercises or helping their mothers with the brasses. So what then, I ask, was the Civil War all about? It was hardly the North. Yet everyone knew that Collins intended at some point to invade and reclaim it. Was it the oath of allegiance? It was hardly that either, except for those extreme idealists who lacked the patience to wait for expanded versions of freedom. They could have sworn the oath as an empty coercive formula and simply forgotten it. In later years, they would swear many oaths, which they forgot all too quickly indeed, showing that the Irish have a wonderful gift for amnesia as well as for remembering. Um, The Civil War drew in some of these idealists, but I think also the kind of male who by 1922 had been convinced that alternative organisations of militancy were not available and had come to regard the state of war and fighting as almost normal. It's significant that wherever the British went, they created a cult around the world of soldierhood. And when they withdrew from a country, they often left conditions ripe for civil strife. Of course, in any but a strictly military sense, it's often difficult to assign a specific date to a civil war. In the Irish case, there were internal divisions long before 1922. And these were still being played out, I think, in attempts attempts by Fianna Fáil to dominate the 1966 memorial events, those of us old enough remember the writing out of Conley from that particular script or by Fine Gael to make similar efforts to link their party traditions to key moments in the decade of commemoration, which I encountered in the head office of the Irish Times. The British often withdrew precipitately before they had trained the colonised people in the art of government, although it's only fair to add that the civil service saw a fairly seamless transition and local government had been well reorganized by them, But George Russell, cooperator and poet, foresaw the coming political crisis in civic politics as early as 1916 when he wrote, there is a danger in revolution if the revolutionary spirit is much more advanced than the moral qualities which alone can secure the success of a revolt. These intellectual and moral qualities, the skill to organize, the wisdom to control large undertakings. They are not natural gifts, but the result of experience." I think that it it was of these qualities that WB Yeats was thinking when he wrote that song which is, that poem, which is no longer safe for the classroom, as one professor told me, Leda and the Swan. Um, If Leda is the perennial Irish girl and the swan a version of the invading power, the question at the end makes a sudden political sense. Did she put on his knowledge with his power before the indifferent beak could let her drop? The girl has feeling, the swan knowledge, and the poem is a reworking of a story of rape and brutal withdrawal. That final question could be asking, when the Irish took over power from the empire, did they also take on the century's home skill of self-government, knowledge? The indifferent beak, whose violence is captured in those monosyllabic plosives beak, drop, becomes Yeats's judgment on the callous suddenness of an ill-prepared British withdrawal, something that was going to be repeated in India, Cyprus, etc., etc., etc. So is that closer to what the Civil War was about? Out of the quarrel with ourselves we make poetry, Yeats said, perhaps thinking of what Ernie O'Malley called the lyric phase of the revolution, but from the quarrel with others we make prose that bitter, hard-edged realism which led to appalling atrocities, both by Free Stater and Republican, and the burning out of many decent people, such as Horace Plunkett, at just that point when he intended to bequeath his house to the nation. George Russell said that the idealism of Yeats and the revival had given way to the realism of Joyce and O'Flaherty, an exploration of the sewers, and that this was perhaps an inevitable antidote Joyce, in other words, was made inevitable by the poetry of Yeats. The lyric phase was bound sooner or later to contain the essential criticism of the poetry to which it adhered. As to the rhetoric which characterised these events, the robust integrity of the treaty debates might be considered the last high-voltage expression of the nation's quarrel with itself. Citizens' rights, social democracy, cultural self-determination, That disputants of such eloquence should soon be at war with each other was a dire tragedy indeed. And yet there hangs over that debate a sense of uncertainty. Its speakers had sought various dreams of which they couldn't fully speak. They could speak only of having sought them. It's like Joyce's Ulysses. Their Ireland was becoming an answer to a question which nobody had exactly asked or fully asked. The disputants, in the words of Patrick O'Farrell, were looking not so much for an answer, as for a meaning to their question. Back in 1916, the rebels had played a role, assuming a republic in order to prove its existence. Many had behaved like actors. Indeed, many, like Edward Keegan, were actors. The problem was like that defined a generation earlier by Oscar Wilde. The first duty in life is to adopt a pose, and what the second is, no one has yet found out. Had the contributors to the treaty debates any real agreement as to what they were fighting for? Land, certainly, for many of the poorer pa- participants, like the Keegan's, had been evicted in earlier decades from family farms. But beyond that, when Tomas O'Crihan asked fellow islanders on the blasket recorded in his book, Ollagarna Hinnisha, *Aber an fócal Republic in Wailing, say the word Republic in Irish. His fellow islanders found they had no such word. Agasis is achir imni imni irid arif, and it's little entertainment worried you either, was Tomás' laconic reply. The burning out of Protestant houses has less of a sectarian dimension than is sometimes assumed in the narratives. Many of its exponents just wanted their land back. And compared with Russia, few enough big houses got burnt in the War of Independence. Of course, many more were torched in the Civil War, often by people who expected to uh, obtain more land for their family farms. But some of the perpetrators, half apologetic for what they were doing, helped the aristocrats save family heirlooms, as Terence Dooley showed in that great recent book. And he also showed how some more crude operatives simply looted the houses. And that Catholic landlords were shot, too, because their land was also felt to have been stolen from rightful owners. There's no doubt that many Protestants who left for England felt no longer welcome in Ireland or loved. And the closing of their houses and abandonment of their domains removed good jobs from Catholic as well as Protestant. But there is complexity here, too. My Trinity roommate in the 1970s, his grandfather was a doctor in Greystones and Dawkey, a man who served in the Crown forces and lost a leg at Ypres, but he also cared for the local poor in Greystones and Dawkey, often without charge. And when his name was added to the list of men to be assassinated as members of the Crown forces, the local IRA alerted him and kept him in a hidden place until the danger had passed and his family and descendants lived on happily in Ireland. Of course, these were frenetic times. The sheer effort expended in expelling the British from 26 counties, not to mention fighting for small countries in World War I and the Black and Tan Terror, all that had left people exhausted and in no mood to reimagine the national condition. I think a majority wearily accepted the treaty as the freedom to win further freedom, and, indeed, great things were done in the early years of the state, such as building a power station, or broadcasting the first live sporting event, or improving the housing supply. But the old imperial-facing capital of Dublin was not relocated and replaced by a different city. Attitudes to schooling hardly changed at all. If anything, things went backwards. Pierce's idea of a sort of Montessori, child-centred arts and craft education made way for a dismal imitation of English public schools with their rote learning and corporal punishment designed to bring rebellious individuals back into line. It was no surprise that many people lapsed back, exhausted onto the received old forms, with imperial post boxes painted green and British guns once aimed at Easter rebels now borrowed to shoot out the rebels in the forecourts. In all of that, there is what Eric Fromm would later call the fear of freedom. The bleakness of freedom could seem lonely indeed, unconsciously projected perhaps by the sheer blankness that made the map of Ireland seem empty on those first free state postage stamps. Bernard Shaw captured that sense of baffled vacancy when he wrote in the Irish Statesman in 1928, when we were given a free hand to make good, we found ourselves with a shock that has taken all the moral pluck out of us as completely as shell shock. We can recover ourselves only by forcing ourselves to face new ideas. Meanwhile, the people, cowed by a rule-obsessed ecclesiocracy, behaved like apple lickers. People who have tempted in the Garden of Eden would, in the words of Sean O'Fallon, have licked rather than bitten the apple. So you end up back with Oscar Wilde's question. What was that second idea after the initial pose was abandoned? Some 1916 rebels thought they had got closer to it. Tom MacDonough said that the mystic, quote, seeks to express the things of God that are made known to him in no language. This might be one way of explaining the British complaint that whenever they came up with an answer, the Irish changed the question. That was because maybe they had no final idea as to what exactly the question was. Some sort of mystical republic beyond description in any available language. James Joyce wrote about the uncreated conscience of the race. He said that the Irish working and middle class had yet to be made. Pierce, being Pierce, went much further. What if the dream come true and if millions unborn shall dwell in the house that I shaped in my heart, the noble house of my thought? Now, I think that gives a key role to the unconscious, a sort of imaginative surplus to be revealed only in the future, Ireland of the coming times. And indeed, Hamlet was a play well known to the rebels. It was being performed during Easter week. And in the course of it, the player King says, but orderly to end where I begun, our wills and faces do so contrary run, that our devices still are overthrown, Our thoughts are ours, their ends, none of our own. In other words, the deed subverts its intended outcome. The unconscious does its will, bringing the people to a place they never expected to be. Or, as another Shakespearean king says, no thought is contented, for it will seek its object in the strange and in the new. If the people had known their destination to begin with, they would never have needed to go there. It's like when we scholars are asked to list outcomes on a report sheet. And sure if we knew what the outcomes were, we wouldn't need to do the three years of research. The exact same problem. I put it like this in literary critical terms. You need a self to narrate your story. But how can you presume to know a self until after the story is told? How can you represent the new in a language subsoiled with the messy precedents, the unknown expressed in terms of the known. Um, Robert Bala once pointed out to me that the fuzzy font on the Easter proclamation represents this problem, the fuzziness of the surrounding thinking. And one could say the same about O'Casey, who was generally careful to keep his rebels off the stage. As one of my colleagues once said, most of his gunmen are shadows. The same question was put by W.B. Yeats in his play Resurrection. What if there is always something that lies outside knowledge, outside order? What if at that moment when knowledge or order seemed complete, that something appears? So the fight was to be about meaning and would seek an answer to a question that nobody had ever fully asked, because nobody had thought through the ramifications of a republic in the days of the Irish Parliamentary Party, just as nobody had really thought of a book like Ulysses in the era of realist novels. But as in classic tragedy, the unaskable question, once it's put, shatters all the paradigms of the known world. In order to act, the Irish had to forget many scruples, transcend many scruples based on the past. They had to move by intuition. They acted upon impulse, simply in order to discover what might happen next. And I think that's a truer, humbler account of the thinking that went into the Easter Rising. Kids are asked to list the four main causes, but history doesn't work like that. And history, as Joyce thought it might, gave everyone a back kick. I've often noted that civil wars tend not to start or end on exact dates. Before she died, Joan Didion observed that the United States version of civil war wasn't yet over, but was being carried forward into modern times by Trump's hatred of Obama, one could say the same about the competitive behavior of civil war parties in Ireland around commemoration. And the effects of civil war have been massive. Silence was one of them. Emotional breakdown another. See McGahern's Amongst Women for samples or indeed a recent movie. And exile was a very common reaction. De Valera accused emigrants, as did Maud of apostasy. But many went to the USA, where their business skills flourished at a time when Ireland badly stood in need of that kind of skill. How often did I see a van bearing the name FX Brennan, established 1927 in New York, and lament the loss to an Ireland filled with timid professional men and few risk-taking entrepreneurs? As for the ranchers who replaced the landlords, their role had been anticipated and foretold over a 100 years earlier when Thady Quirk took over Castle Rackrent on the terms most favourable to every middleman who followed him, Edgeworth foresaw the next 200 years. The Civil War had multiple antecedents indeed. If you wanted to, you could go back as far as Wexford and Waterford in 1169, the internal strife of the 12th century, which led to the invasion of Ireland. But there's no doubt that an amazing number of intellectuals. Whether participant or not, were so disgusted by the vicious civilian strife that they opted for various forms of emigration. Flan Campbell, for instance, went to the US in 1925 and effectively founded Irish Studies there after the collapse of his marriage. Fordham University amalgamated his school into its English department in 1932, and he stayed teaching there until 1939. Sean O'Foyanon left for literary study and teaching at Harvard. Prison allowed these figures to rethink their nationalist politics, as Frank O'Connor illustrated in his famous story, Guests of the Nation, about the plight of men forced to kill those who have actually become their friends. The losers of the Civil War were often socially disgraced, and many found it hard to get regular work in their old trades, or even communion at some altar rails. Most were landless laborers, Some went into the small-time pub trade, not for them the large rolling acres after the land acts. Yet the revolutionary spirit that swept Europe after 1918 led landless laborers to understand that they were persons of consequence in their own right. John McGarren, however, did not regard 1922 as a significant date. It was simply, he once said to me, A moment when responsibility for managing the decline of rural Ireland passed from one elite to another. The emerging grazier class was more interested in land ownership than land use and in securing enough affluence to place a son in a diocesan college or to make another offspring an apprentice solicitor. People killed with respectability, as the old phrase went, who could be relied upon to promote the appropriate ideology. So there were few to speak for those landless laborers who left in great numbers. His utter lack of interest in the radical ideas of the democratic program of 1919 meant that de Valera probably got fewer votes than he might have done in the early years of Fianna Fáil. Allegations that he was a Bolshevik put paid to all of that. His idolater and biographer, Dorothy McArdle, finally rebuked him for timidity in 1937, lamenting in a letter that Ireland was now a necropolis, an idea Brian Friel later developed in a play. By then, George Russell, editor of the Irish Statesman, had decamped to England, where he helped P. L. Travers craft the tale of Mary Poppins. And then he went to the United States, where he advised the administration during the Dust Bowl years on the merits of rural cooperation. His friend Stephen McKenna, the great translator of Plotinus, companion to Singh, and editor of Uncle of Sullish, also left for England. More than one in two people born in the island after 1900 were gone by the 1930s. What is remarkable is that so many with vibrant minds stayed and made things so much better in the 1960s with expressions of cultural self-belief linked to programs for economic development. It's almost ritual now to invoke the name of T.K. Whitaker in terms of economic development but Whitaker saw the link with culture he was the one who inspired Sean O'Toolema to publish An Dúnra the poems of the dispossessed he had a link with Kernini clubby the revival in Irish music he went every year to the Merriman school i'm not sure that all the mandarins in the department of finance these days might be seeing doing energetic sets in Lisdoun Varna at the Merriman Winter School, but perhaps hope springs eternal. Independence did create immense possibilities for a country denied self-government for more than a century, but this exciting thought was tempered by the sense that things, in Lampedusa's words, had changed mainly so that they could remain the same. The civil war, as I say, led to a distrust of anyone who made an idea or a scheme the basis of inaction. Science wasn't greatly esteemed in schools when I attended my secondary, nor indeed was literature, which had helped to invent Ireland, but now found itself often censored by the very country it had helped to create. Science and poetry were all very well in their place, my head teacher would tell me. But it was a subordinate place and, quote unquote, you could have too much of that kind of thing. The idea of a rights-based secular society which informed the proclamation and the democratic programme was replaced generally by a narrowly defined ethnic nationalism, notably in the 1937 constitution. The Irish language ceased to feel like a recoverable gift and to many school children it abhor- appeared more in the guise of a threat. I remember all the instructions, the interdictions in school were always barked out in Irish. It was the language of negation. There might be no word for yes or no, but there was a lot of negation, and religion was reduced to a set of rules rather than to a version of imaginative possibility. Yeats once wrote in a letter, if we had more real religion in Ireland, we might have less morals. The moral impulse and the religious destroy one another, he said, in the end. I was once, he added, fearful of turning out rational myself. No hope but people, few people really understood what he meant. The study of the catechism of Catholic doctrine and of the intricate grammar of irregularities in the Irish language took up so many hours of the school day. And teachers were encouraged to see themselves as the non-commissioned officers of the official church. So as Ireland hovered between sovereign status and empire affiliate, it was indeed caught in a posture of waiting for full republican sovereignty, for social democracy, economic liftoff, even spiritual renewal. In Beckett's play Endgame, 1957, one of the characters asks, do you believe in a life to come, only to be told, mine was always that. The line reappeared in Ballymurphy some decades later, and it would be some decades before the full fruits of independence would be tested again in the 1960s and yet again in the 1990s and tasted, but only then by a lucky minority. Thank you very much.